Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2? We're looking at Titus 2. I'm going to read the first 10 verses for us as we continue our study in the pastoral epistles. Now, I'm going to read these 10 verses, but I need you to hold on to your seats because by my count, in these 10 verses, Paul gives us 29 commands. There are 29 things for you to do based on this passage. Now, there's some good news and some intense news. The good news is um, it's actually divvied up among six different groups of people, right? So you're not in every single group. He's going to address Titus himself, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then slaves. So all these 29 commands kind of get divvied up. The intense news is as you uh, see the backdrop of the New Testament behind this, more or less everything he commands every single group of people, he also commands all of us as the body of Christ. So I want us to listen carefully as I read from Titus chapter 2. Here's God's word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to be a people who wears our doctrine. We want to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior with good works, with these things that you command us to, and we can only do that in the promise of your gospel and in the power of your Holy Spirit. So would you teach us and change us and shape us into your image, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I want to wade into these 29 commands. I want to understand what we're being asked and called to do as believers. But before that, we need a refresher in gospel grammar. We need, as a church, to understand in our Bibles the difference between indicatives and imperatives. We need to see the difference between these two. Now, an indicative is simply a statement of fact. When we open our Bibles and we read God is love, that's an indicative statement. That's a statement of truth. That's a good piece of theology that we hold on to and believe. An imperative is different. An imperative is a command. So when our Bibles say love one another, it's not so much teaching us about who God is in our theologies. It's ethics. It's what we do. As we read our Bibles, we hear indicatives again and again and again. They teach us who God is and what the world is like and who we are. And then we read imperatives which turn us around and say, this is how you are to live and to think and to feel in light of this world. We can't go anywhere without indicatives. We can't go anywhere without good theology, without first reading and knowing and believing that God is love and that God shows his love to us preeminently through the gospel, that he has sent his son as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. You don't get that. You don't get anything in the Christian faith. 
But we don't stop there. We also can't go anywhere without imperatives because we then read in our Bibles that we are to love one another, and this is not love on our terms. This is not love that we define ourselves. This is not love in our own power. It's all based on what has come before, the theological groundwork. God is love, therefore love one another. And so we live out our faith in light of our theology. Indicatives and imperatives are both essential to the Christian life. You could think about them as the left foot and the right foot. This is how we walk with Jesus together. Now think about this for a moment. What if you had a church that was all indicatives and no imperatives? That is a church that had great theology, but very poor ethics. They knew a lot, but they didn't do anything with it. Well, that's actually the situation in Crete, and that's what Paul complains about in chapter 1, verse 16. Look at what he says. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Isn't that fascinating? Their, their theology is pretty much impeccable, right? With their lips, they profess that they know God. They sit with us on Sunday morning, and they recite the Apostles' Creed with us in the Nicene Creed, but they deny that same God because they don't do anything with it. They don't get out and live the Christian life. They deny him by their works. They're all indicatives and no imperatives. Well, think about the inverse. What if we were a church that's all imperatives? We got the ethics, we got the commands, but we don't have the indicatives. We don't have good theology to ground it. Well, then we would be a church that's guilty of legalism, right? We're so eager to love one another that we begin to do that on our own terms and in our own power and not first understanding the good news of the gospel, that God is love and that he's loved us through his son. You have to have both together. You have to have theology and ethics. You have to have indicatives and imperatives. So this morning, we have this major section of Scripture that lists 29 commands, but don't you dare cut these things off at the knees. Don't forget everything we've already heard about God and his gospel and his grace and how he views us and what he's done on our behalf and how he empowers us to live. Don't forget all that and take these commands and rip them out of the Bible and say it's all about imperatives. No, it is about living in light of gospel truth. Now, of the six groups, I only want to look at four this morning. We're not going to look at Titus himself. And we did address uh, slavery in our study of First and Second Timothy. And we understood then that slavery was very different in Paul's day than it is today. And we can't um, take that word out of our Bibles and understand it in a 21st century American framework without doing our homework and understanding what Paul is referring to. But we don't have time to do that this morning. I simply want to address the other four groups that Paul addresses. And we're going to start by speaking to our older men and our older women. Now, Paul addresses you in Scripture, and when he says older men and older women, we know from other writings in Paul's day that he's probably referring to people who are about 50 years or older. We're talking about 50s and 60s and up. So we're not talking about old people. We're talking about older people. And Paul has also in mind that these are empty nesters, that they've seen their kids grow and are gone. Now, this is dead true. When I was in college, I thought my best work was going to happen in my 20s right? Because you're in college and you have this incredible amount of energy. Physically, I'm at my prime. Mentally, I'm ready to do my homework and study. And I figured if there's any contribution I'm going to make to this world at all, it's going to be in my 20s. 
Because by the time you turn 30, your body just starts to decay, right? It just goes downhill, and it doesn't do what you want it to do. And you just kind of get put on the shelf at 30. And so I thought, man, if I'm going to do anything, it better be in my 20s. Well, fast forward to somebody introducing me to the novelist Annie Prue, who wrote her first, first novel at age 57 and wrote her second novel at age 58 and won the Pulitzer Prize and turned my literary world upside down. And I realized all of a sudden that right now at the tender age of 33, I should probably just shut my mouth and wait 25 years until I have something valuable to say, right? I want the life experiences and the wisdom that come with age. I'm going to finish the sermon and then I'm going to shut up for 25 years. Um, But we live in this culture of youth that lusts after youth, right? We all hustle to get to the teenage and the 20-something years, and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to freeze ourselves back in that time of those gilded years. We all want youth. We crave for youth. We celebrate it in our culture. Uh, I heard of a bank who they used to have a senior checking account. Well, that's totally taboo. Nobody wants to hear those terms. And so they changed it over time to the classic checking account, which I think is a good move. But most recently, they changed it again to get this. They have a renaissance checking account. The the older members of the bank, they have a renaissance. I mean, there's something that sounds so regal about that. You've got $3 in it, but it's a renaissance checking account. Um. So for Paul now to pause in this letter and say, hey, listen up, I want to talk to the old people in the room. I want to talk to anybody here who's 50 or older. I want to talk to the gray hairs. I want to talk to the empty nesters. I want to talk to uh, the baby boomers. I want to talk to our older saints. That rubs us as very un-American and very inappropriate, right? We don't distinguish each other by age. And yet Paul is addressing a house church of 20 people. And he says, let me pause for a minute and speak to the older men and the older women. And when he does that, he gets an opportunity to say this. Older men and older women here at CPC, our Renaissance members who are here, this thing called the local church, it cannot function without you. If you're not here, if you're not attending, if you're not participating, if you're not pouring out your life into this church and the people around you, this thing will flounder. We need, as a body, the older saints in our midst. That's what Paul is saying. And so first he wants to address the older men in our midst. And he says to you, right now you have incredible resources. If you are age 50 or above, many of you are in a new place in your career. Many of you have resources you didn't have 20 years ago. Maybe you have more earning potential. You certainly have newer relationships and life experiences and wisdom, and you have resources that you didn't have before. And Paul asks you in the spirit this morning, what are you doing with them? What are you doing as an older saint? Because watch out. The American advertising machine prowls around like a roaring lion seeking an older man to devour, to turn in on himself and to use these years to serve himself and to play by himself and to enjoy these years by himself, but not so with you, older saint. You're addressed in verse 2. 
Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Faith, love, steadfastness, you could translate that hope, the great Christian triad of faith, love, and hope. Our older saints are to be growing in that. Now, it's almost watermelon season. And when you go to a shop for a watermelon, you know you have to thump the watermelon to listen to see if it's a good one. I can never remember what I'm listening for, but I don't want to look like an idiot at the farmer's market, and so I'm just like beating on these watermelons. Um, For the record, it's a hollow sound. You hear a hollow sound in a watermelon, and it is at its prime. It's ready to eat. You take it home and enjoy it. What would happen if we thumped the lives of older saints in this church? Would we hear sickness or soundness? Would we hear the sickness of a life that's beginning to turn in on itself to serve itself? Or would we hear the soundness of a life that is growing in faith and love and hope? What do we hear, saints? The older women in our midst were addressed in verses 3 through 4. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Now, older women in our midst, especially those who are watching kids grow and are gone, and you find that that your responsibilities at home and with family life are shrinking, what are you doing with your newfound freedom? What are you doing with your time, and how are you investing it? Paul warns about slander and gossip and much wine as things that fight to fill our free time. Is that true of you? When you find free time emerge, are you drawn to gossip or to banal chit-chat? Are you busying your tongue speaking to other people of things that aren't life-giving and helpful? Or are you reaching for substances to kind of satisfy you in boredom? Much wine, materialism, envy, listlessly surfing the web. What are you doing with the time that you have? Because over and against all that, Paul says, you as an older woman have an essential role in the local church. He says this in verse 3. You are to be reverent in behavior. Now when Paul says that, he's using a unique word. It's a compound in the Greek, and it's only here in the New Testament. And it essentially means you are to be reverent as becoming of temple service. In other words, older women, you are to be priestesses in our midst. Now we know from 2 Peter chapter 2 that every single Christian is a priest. We are a nation, a holy nation of priests, that all of us in the gospel have access to God. All of us in the gospel can intercede on behalf of another person. All of us are priests, but Paul wants to zero in right now and to say to our older women in our midst, you have a unique priestly role in this church that you will exercise in your behavior and how you train and disciple younger women. You as an older saint are to disciple the younger women in our midst. Now I realize when we hear the word disciple, it's much like the word evangelism. We're just immediately wrought with anxiety, right? How can I disciple? What would I even say to a younger woman? I don't know my Bible like I should. I've never been to seminary. Where would I start if my role in the church is to disciple a younger woman? Older women... Here's where you start. You pick up the phone and you invite a younger woman to lunch. Or if she's a stay-at-home mom, you invite yourself over to fold laundry with her and to ask her about her life. How are you? What's going on? 
What are you excited about? What are you afraid of? What are you hopeful for? What's the Lord teaching you? And in doing so, you are serving this young woman and you are engaging her on a spiritual level. And if all you do those first few times is to learn better ways to pray for this younger woman, you have done a world of good in this church. And we commend your ministry. Now, I want to warn you, if you pull aside a younger woman and you say, I want to come fold your laundry and I want to talk to you for an hour about everything you don't know about Jesus but should know about him, then that's kind of a toss-up for a mom. It's like, I want to get the laundry done, but I don't want somebody to talk my ear off for an hour. You're a priestess. You go and you serve. You look out over this church and you say, every single woman here in this church is either moving towards Jesus or away from him. There's no no man's land, there's no middle ground, there's no neutral status where we just kind of surf. We're either growing in Jesus and moving towards him, or we're retreating from Jesus and moving away from him. And as an older woman, who are the few, one, two, three women that you kind of pull aside and say, I'm, I'm going to do small things to nudge them towards Jesus? What a powerful, powerful ministry in the life of this church. That, that's, that's your calling amongst us. Thirdly, we address younger women. Paul says to you in verses 4 through 5 these things, and of the seven commands he gives you, four of them are unique to wives and mothers. And so to our young women who are in this church, who God has either called you to singleness, and that's a wonderful and a beautiful thing, or you are in a season of waiting either for a husband or a husband and children, do not wish this time away. The spiritual action is today. It's not when I arrive here or something happens or I'm in a new season. The spiritual action is here and now. Do not wish this time away because Paul is calling you to something. Be self-controlled. Be kind. Be pure, Paul says. For in doing so, verse 5, no one in our city will have cause to dismiss God or his word lightly. Because you live out your Christian faith as a young woman, you will begin to remove obstacles of the gospel from your neighbors, and that is a powerful ministry in our midst. To our young moms, especially those young moms who have kids who are at home, Paul also addresses you. You know, we as a church have very big aims for you as a young mom. We want you to be disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church. We want you as young moms to grow in the amount of time you spend in the word and in prayer. We want you to also think about discipling relationships, who you're connecting to, and think about evangelism relationships, who are you reaching out to with the gospel. We want you to be serious about mercy and justice. We want you to be salt and light in our city. We want all those things for you. But this morning, on Mother's Day, take a deep breath. Because Jesus' marching orders to you right now from the Spirit in this text is this. Love your husband and love your kids. Serve your husband and serve your kids. Be kind to them and work hard in your home. Two and a half weeks ago, we brought our two sons, Gabriel and Noah, home. And I was able to take one week, uh, an entire week with them at home, just the role of a stay-at-home dad. And I... Got them up in the morning, I changed diapers, I served them breakfast, I cleaned them up, we ran outside and played, we came back inside, we did lunch, we did all those things, and it was a wonderful week to bond with them. And I think Jesus really used that time to say, the reason he made me a church planner is because I couldn't cut it as a stay-at-home mom. 
is tough, tough work, and I just don't have the energy or the patience to do it. I'd way rather plan a church than be a stay-at-home mom. This is a high calling that you have in our midst, young moms. And the devil, I think, loves to tell you that you're the weakest link in the local church. Because it's very hard for you to discern what your spiritual gift is and how you can serve and what you can do. And your life now is nothing like your life in the church before you had young kids. Um, and, and it's just hard to show up on Sunday morning on time, fully clothed, in your right mind with all your kids, much less be an active participant in this mission. And the devil loves to tell you, you are the weakest link. You're not doing anything here. Why do you listen to him? He's a liar and he always lies to you. And the Spirit is telling you this morning, young mom, love your husband and love your kids. Your home is a trench. Your breakfast table is a battlefield. Get engaged and fight the good fight and Jesus will go on building his kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You have a critical ministry in this church. Finally, younger men. This is my favorite. I love this in verse 6. Look at what Paul says. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, when I read that, I'm kind of flipping the page to look for the rest of the commands because he just said a bunch of things to older men and women and younger women, and now all he says to young men is to be self-controlled. Now, I think that relates to the situation in Crete. He's really dealing with some issues, and he doesn't right now need to address the younger men But the simplicity of that command as it falls on us as the secondary hearers is really impactful because the Spirit is saying to us younger men of whom I'm included, look, nobody's asking you to build the Hoover Dam this morning. I'm pleading with you, show a little bit of self-control. Can you do that? Young men, can you do that? Show a little self-control? If God's created the world, if Jesus has saved you, if the Spirit animates everything we do, then for God's sake and I mean that literally, put down the video game controller. Put down the fierce temper and the lustful looks. Put down the selfishness that just erodes us from the inside out. Put these things down and profess God with both your lips and your lives and show an ounce of self-control, and you will do a world of good in this church and in this city. What a simple command for us this morning. Well, look at where all of this leads. These 29 commands, these six moving groups, all of these people who are being orchestrated by the Spirit to live out the Christian life, all of this leads us to verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To adorn something is to to dress it up and to beautify it. It's to make it look wonderful and pretty, but the object of our adornment adornment is God, our Savior, who is the most glorious, self-contained beauty that there is. When we live out the gospel in word and in deed, all we do is draw people's attention to God, our Savior, and the beauty that he is. That's what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and what? Give you a pat on the back? So that they may see your good deeds and what? Talk about what a wonderful church this is and what stand-up folks go here? No. So that they will see your good deeds and not even notice you, but glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's why we labor, friends, fellow saints, older men and older women, younger women and younger men, 
This is why we work hard at good works so that people will cease to notice us and to wonder in amazement of the beautiful God we serve in heaven. Let me pray for us. Father, we can't do this on our own. We can't be these kinds of people. The moment we labor towards these things, we fall and we falter. But you're calling us to something different. In the power of your gospel and your spirit, you're calling us to lives that look like Jesus. And in doing so, you will gain the glory. I pray that you would make us such a people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.